This is the Notable Speeches Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we hope you're having a wonderful Advent. Today is speech by Walter Hooper, a man who dedicated most of his adult life to preserving and promoting the writings of C.S. Lewis. Mr. Hooper died on December 7th at the age of 89. Had it not been for Walter Hooper, it is likely that many of Lewis's essays, poems, and other writings would have been lost, destroyed, or forgotten after Lewis's death in 1963. Hooper edited more than 30 collections of Lewis's works and played a pivotal role, especially in the 1960s and 70s, in keeping Lewis's books in print, including such titles as The Abolition of Man and The Screwtape Letters. Although Walter Hooper lived much of his life in Oxford, England, where, of course, Lewis had lived and worked, he was an American, born in North Carolina. He went on to study English at UNC Chapel Hill and later taught at the University of Kentucky. Having read Lewis and having been deeply affected by what he read, Hooper traveled to England to meet C.S. Lewis, who was commonly known as Jack. Jack Lewis asked him to stay and serve as his secretary, answering correspondence and handling other administrative tasks. Mr. Hooper will continue that story and what you're about to hear and go on to talk about his work of the past several decades. By the way, you'll hear him mention the Kilns, that is the house on the outskirts of Oxford where Jack Lewis lived with his older brother Warney and where he wrote many of his works. The house is now owned by the C.S. Lewis Foundation. Here is Walter Hooper speaking in 2007 at an event sponsored by Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Mr. Hooper spoke for about an hour. The audio has been abridged for this podcast. I came, I think, as you know, originally from Reedsville, North Carolina, and I began corresponding with Lewis in 1954. While teaching at the University of Kentucky, I visited Lewis in Oxford during the summer of 63. We became friends, and I moved into his house as his secretary. He wanted this to be a permanent arrangement, and I agreed to give up my job and, and return to Oxford in 1964. When I got back to Kentucky, I resigned the job and began preparing to rejoin Lewis. Then, on 22 November 1963, President J. F. Kennedy was assassinated. Hours after learning of his death, I was told that C.S. Lewis had died the same hour. Even now, I can hardly bear to think about that terrible day. Lewis had been the center of my life since I first came across his writings in 1953. And during the months we were together, I had come to love him. Now, everything seemed lost. However, as things settled down, I received a letter from those friends of Lewis I had come to know best during the summer of 63, Dr. Austin Farrer, the warden of Keeble College, and his wife, Catherine. The Farrers felt there was something for me to do in Oxford, and they urged me to come back, staying with them in Keeble College. I took them at their word and returned to Oxford in January 1964. I was a guest of the Farrers in Keeble College, and I soon came to know Lewis's brother, Warney. To avoid confusion, I will give them the names their friends used. C.S. Lewis was called Jack, and Warney Lewis was called Warney. 
While my loss was perhaps nothing compared to Warney's, we met his friends, both of whom who had lost a great deal. Over time, I realized that although Warney was four years older than Jack, his dependence upon Jack made him in some ways the younger of the two. Certainly, what Jack said about the death of their mother when they were children was true again for Warney. There was to be no more of the old security. It was sea and islands now. The great continent had sunk like Atlantis. Warney could have remained at the Kilns. This was the house bought jointly in 1930 by the Lewis brothers and by Mrs. Janie Moore, who was the mother of Jack's friend Paddy, who was killed in the First War, and whom Jack later referred to as his adopted mother. It was agreed that the Kills would be the home of the Lewis brothers as long as they lived, after which it would pass to Mrs. Moore's daughter. So Warnick could have spent the rest of his life there, but he panicked. He feared he would not be able to pay the taxes on the place, and I arrived to find that he'd already bought a small house a quarter of a mile away in Ringwood Road. He thought it would be cheaper to run. When C.S. Lewis died, his stepsons, David and Douglas Gresham, were aged 19 and 18. They were both away in college at this time, but they were given a home with their mother's greatest friend, Miss Jean Wakeman. No one could approve better at being a substitute mother than this lovable woman. Despite the fact that he gave away most of what he earned, I had observed Jack Lewis's almost comical fear of going broke. It was something both men shared with their father, despite the fact that none of the Lewises was ever close to such a catastrophe. It turned out that Warney inherited all his brother's copyrights for the rest of his life, after which they would go to his two stepsons. But the estate was not yet settled at this time, and Warney feared the worse. Jack's estate was evaluated at 59,000 pounds, and the government took 20,000 pounds in inheritance tax. The estate was settled after a few months, but royalties depend on the sale of books, and Warney had no idea whether or not his brother's books would continue to sell. This uncertain state of affairs was still causing him terrible anxiety as late as September 1964, when he said in his diary, My life continues very desolate, and I seem to miss my dear Jack more rather than less as time goes on. Whilst the perpetual headache of Jack's absence is the chief cause of my depression, it is not the only one. He will soon have left me ten months ago, and still I haven't the smallest idea of the amount of income or the extent of my liabilities. The thing is becoming a nightmare and is rarely out of my thoughts for an hour altogether. Meanwhile, in preparing for moving out of the kilns and into the small house, Warney was downsizing to an almost alarming degree. 
He knew it had to be done. Warner had set aside those things of his brother's life which had a special significance for him, such as diaries and other mementos, but the rest had to go. Warney was a historian, not an English scholar. He loved his brother's Christian apologetics, but I remember him picking up a copy of Jack's English literature in the 16th century and saying, I don't suppose anybody has ever read this. <laughs> I have, I said. Really? He said, I thought it was the kind of thing scholars had to write, but that no one read. <laughs> I mentioned elsewhere the day I went out to the kills to learn from Lewis's gardener, Fred Paxford, that a bonfire had been burning for three days. Paxford knew that I loved anything in C.S. Lewis's hand, and he told me I'd arrived just in time, that he'd just been instructed to add to the fire a mass of notebooks and other papers that had belonged to C.S. Lewis. He urged Warney to delay until I could see them. When I showed up, Warney told me I could have the papers so long as they were removed that very day. What papers went into the fire I never discovered. George Sayer believed that Lewis had written a sequel to Surprised by Joy. If so, it was never found. In any event, let me say that none of this surprised me. Neither of the brothers felt the reverence for their manuscripts that we feel. When I was getting to know Jack Lewis a little, I asked what he did with the manuscripts, his manuscripts, and he told me that after writing a book such as The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he turned the manuscript over and wrote another book on the other side. He then threw the manuscript away. I did not need to express the horror I felt, for he saw it in my face. And from that point on, he began giving me the manuscripts of whatever he had published or was about to publish, the first of which was Letters to Malcolm. When Warnis saw the delight I took in the notebooks and various papers he gave me, those originally destined for the fire, he was delighted that I cared about so much for them. One of the items saved from the fire was a blue folder of poems Jack had been working on in Magdalen College, Cambridge. When he sent me over to clear out his rooms the summer of 63, he begged me to be sure I brought the blue folder back to Oxford and put it in his hands, so precious were the poems. When I explained to Warney that his brother had been getting some of his poems together for publication, he invited me to become the editor of his brother's literary remains, thus setting the course of my life the next 44 years. It was not, however, Warney alone who could determine what could be published and by whom, but the trustees of the C.S. Lewis estate his old friends, Owen Barfield and Cecil Harwood, Lewis's exact contemporaries, had known both for some time, and if they felt any resentment about my being asked to edit their friends' writings, I never detected it. 
They said they were pleased, and I believe they were because while they were exactly Jack Lewis's age, they had been waiting for their retirement in order to pen the books they wanted to write. Barfield the lawyer was just beginning his second life as a speaker on American campuses, and he was to write many books from 1964 onwards. Cecil Harwood, who lives in my memory, is one of the nicest men I ever met, was, as he had been for 40 years, involved in anthroposophy and teaching in a Rudolf Steiner school. In brief, responsibility for Jack's literary state fell on them at an inconvenient time, and they welcomed the young man Jack had already asked to help him. Another whom I met soon after arriving in Oxford was Joy R.R. Tolkien, who could not have been kinder to me than he was, and who soon introduced me to his whole family. Tolkien helped me to see why Lewis's Christian writings made him so unpopular with his unbelieving colleagues. And I remember Tolkien saying over and over again, Lewis was driven to write Christian apologetics by his conscience. Some, incidentally, have argued that Lewis and Tolkien were no longer friends in the, in the last years of Lewis's life. I could see nothing like that. They seemed devoted to one another. There are a number of things you can do about a literary state. One, you can do as Warney was to do a few years later, have it settled by lawyers who haven't a clue about books and their proliferation and who merely settle things. I don't think any of Warney's books were reprinted after this state was wound up. Two, you can pay the government what is owing to them and leave it to the publishers to decide if they reprint your books. Three, all you can do, as Owen Barfield, Cecil Harwood, and I did, fight with all our might to keep C.S. Lewis's books in print and add more books to the list. I'm afraid I've been tamed by the English and am not as aggressive with publishers I once was, but in 1964, Barfield, Harwood, and the Farrers liked my determination, and they did whatever they could to cheer me on. But it was not as easy as I'm making it sound. I read somewhere that Walter Hooper kicked off his career by publishing Lewis's poems. I remember nothing like that. I remember instead the bepuzzlement and anger I felt on seeing Lewis's books remaindered in various Oxford bookshops. It caused me to remember an argument I had with Lewis. He believed that when an author died, his books usually stopped selling after about three years. I argued that this couldn't happen with his books. But as I was later to learn, Lewis was right in thinking that the sales of most authors' books usually trail off to nothing when they die. 
What everyone in England was conscious of at the time was the excitement caused by the publication of J.A.T. Robinson's Honest to God, 1963, a chapter of which Lewis had criticized a few months before he died. At any other time, the bishop's book would have been disregarded. In 1963, it became a media event, a bestseller. What was it about? The bishop said that if Christianity is to mean anything in the future to more than a tiny religious remnant, it would have to learn a new language in which the most fundamental categories of our thought of God, of the supernatural, and of religion itself must go into the melting pot. He suggested that we are even called to a Copernican revolution in which the God of traditional theology must be given up in any form. Lewis, as we all know, was unwilling to throw the slightest particle of traditional doctrine overboard unexamined. But Robinson, a man of the 60s, was willing to demythologize almost anything of which modernity might be suspicious. And soon many theologians were deserting the ranks of the Orthodox for the New Reformation, as Robinson called it. My point is that the world was thrown into confusion during the years immediately after Lewis's death. And what alarmed me more than anything was that publishers were torn between continuing to publish works of Orthodox Christianity are going for works on the New Reformation and demythologizing the gospel. While waiting for things to settle down, I spent most of my time editing Lewis's volume of poems. I discovered from my time with Jack Lewis that he'd forgotten most of his poems and other works, for no man, I believe, was so humble, so almost totally forgetful of himself. Except for the poems in the blue folder brought back from Cambridge, he owned few, if any, of the poems published in various periodicals. I don't think Lewis had more than half a dozen of his own books. Because Lewis preserved so few of his own works, I spent much of my time in what is the most glorious of academic places, the Bodleian Library, the main library of Oxford University. There's still very much I don't know about Lewis and his writings, but every time I come within sight of that great library, I say to myself, I may not find it, but what I want to know is in that building. <laughs> you should know that the Bodleian gets copies of everything published in Great Britain. I don't know how the staff could have been so patient with me, for I know I was a great nuisance. I made out a list of publications I knew Lewis had published in, and a list of those he might have published in, and I would go through every copy of a weekly such as the church paper The Guardian, the one in which the Screwtape Letters originally appeared, page by page from about 1930 to 1963. And there was no index. The only thing to do was to begin at the beginning and look at every page. Those thousands of hours spent in the Bodleian led me to in include a pretty full bibliography of Lewis's writings in the first volume of essays about him, Light on C.S. Lewis, 
which contains valuable pieces by Owen Barfield and others. Warney couldn't move into the smaller house until May of 64, and he was working furiously on what he intended to be a biography of his brother. He had advertised for copies of his brother's letters, and as there was no such thing as photocopying in Oxford, I took my typewriter up to the kills to help copy those letters various correspondents had lent him. I regret now that I was not more vigilant about the letters we borrowed. Because Warney intended to write a biography, not edit a volume of letters, he spent his time copying what were really quotations from Lewis's letters. While he worked with great speed, I plodded along typing entire letters. If only there'd been a way of photocopying, we might have preserved many letters that may be lost forever. In the end, about three-quarters of Warney's book were made up of quotations from the letters, with only about a fourth of it being narrative. It did not have the makings of a biography, and poor Warney was heartbroken when the publishers brought it out as Letters of C.S. Lewis with a memoir by W.H. Lewis. But that was still two years away, and I was as excited as I've ever been in my life when I saw the latest C.S. Lewis's books, Letters to Malcolm, appear in bookshop windows on 27 January 1964, to be followed by the discarded image on 7th of May of that same year. They were followed in October by Lewis's poems. I have to admit to being an essentially lazy man. What forced me to work harder with my editing was a chance comment I heard from Lewis's publisher, Jock Gibb. He said every new book by an author helps sell his old books. It may not happen with every author, but it certainly has been true of Lewis, and this has spurred me on as much as anything. Every new book helps to sell the old ones. It had become impossible to spend more than a few hours a day editing Lewis's papers because I was financially very insecure and needed to work. I'd spent two years in an American seminary, and Austin Farrer wanted very much for me to complete my studies in theology and be ordained an Anglican clergyman. I lived for a year with Warney in the small house while I read theology in Oxford. After being ordained, I was appointed chaplain of Wadham College, an appointment limited to two years. I loved the work, but I st it still didn't pay the bills, and I had to get some work teaching English literature in the local polytechnic college. But I only bring this in to explain why my work on Lewis's papers could not be hurried. It was during the years at Wadham College, 65 to 67, that I edited Lewis's studies in medieval and Renaissance literature and of other worlds and Christian reflections. These volumes contained some of the papers Warney gave me before he left the kills, as well as uncollected pieces Lewis had published in various periodicals and forgot about. But you must not imagine me alone in this editing. Lewis's many friends offer their help and encouragement every step of the way. 
Books were copyrighted for a period of 50 years at that time, and because Barfield and Harwood, the original trustees of the Lewis estate, knew they were not likely to survive another half century, appointed me as an additional trustee in 1967. We worked as a team, and with the encouragement of Lewis's many other friends, Tolkien, of course, but also Hugo Dyson, Neville Carghill, Humphrey Havard, Commander Dundas Grant, Austin and Catherine Farrer, Roger Lancelin Green, and others. By the time I spent my last year in, as chaplain of Jesus College, the Lewis estate had turned a corner, and I saw reason to think that Lewis had been wrong, really wrong, about the sales of his books, and that I had been really right. I will probably never fully understand what happened, but a huge change in the readership of Lewis's books was taking place. Those liberal denominations that abandoned Lewis in the 60s were abandoning him still, but he was still being read in great numbers by Catholics and even more by evangelicals everywhere. In other words, Lewis was popular with those who believed in the supernatural, in miracles, such as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Owen Barfield put me in charge of translations, and I was deeply touched to find that Polish translators, under the heel of communism, were keen to translate Lewis's works. They had almost no money and I charged them the smallest amount possible, half a penny per book. I later learned that the moving force behind the Polish translations was the future Pope, John Paul II. But the state could easily afford to be generous to Poland, for there was an enormous growing interest in Lewis almost everywhere, but especially in the United States. Lewis was becoming very popular again, in fact, more popular than he had ever been in his lifetime. From the time I began editing Lewis, I've tried to keep in mind that it is his work, not mine. It was something of a surprise to find that I am often criticized for my lack of analysis, but it does not worry me. In a letter to the great William Blake scholar Kathleen Raine, Lewis spelled out what I have long regarded as my model in editing Lewis. Plenty of fact, he said, reasoning as brief and clear as English sunshine and no personal comment. It is inevitable that language and much else will change or to use the title Lewis chose for the introduction to the English literature in the 16th century, that would be new learning and new ignorance. I'm going to tell you why I have so much faith in Lewis's writing retaining their relevance. I do this by putting together passages from two great Christians who didn't know one another but overlapped. The first is Lewis, who, in his essay, Dogma and the Universe, answered the question, how can an unchanging system survive the continual increase of knowledge? And his answer was this, wherever there is real progress in knowledge, there is some knowledge that is not superseded. Indeed, the very possibility of progress demands that there should be an unchanging element. 
I take it we should all agree to find this sort of unchanging element in the simple rules of mathematics. I would add to these the primary principles of morality, and I would also add the fundamental doctrines of Christianity. To put it in a rather more technical language, I claim that the positive historical statements made by Christianity have the power elsewhere found chiefly in formal principles of receiving without intrinsic change the increasing complexity of meaning which increasing knowledge puts into them. The second is Pope John XXIII, who, when he opened the Second Vatican Council in 1962, said, The deposit of faith itself and the truths contained in our venerable doctrine are one thing, and the manner in which they are enunciated is another, provided that the same fundamental sense and meaning is maintained. That, I think, says it all. The deposit of faith, that is, the body of saving truth entrusted by Christ to the apostles and handed on, is one thing. The way of presenting it, whether by apologetics, fiction, films, fairy stories, is another. But however it is presented, it must retain the same sense and meaning contained in the gospel. That is never dated. Or, as Lewis says, all that is not eternal is eternally out of date. I've always had this in mind when editing anything by C.S. Lewis. But ladies and gentlemen, it is the words of C.S. Lewis, not those of this editor, that will be read and read for many years to come. Thank you. Walter Hooper, C.S. Lewis's former secretary and longtime champion of Lewis's writings, recorded in 2007. Mr. Hooper died December 7, 2020, in Oxford, England, at age 89. Thank you for listening to the Notable Speeches podcast. You can follow us on Parlor and Twitter at Notable Speeches. Your comments are welcome. Email feedback at notablespeeches.com. I'm Joseph Slife. <laughs>